0: Good morning. Welcome to your very first Elevenses of the week, um, where we're going to welcome Marcos Filatoro. <clears throat> As writers, when we think inspiration, we imagine the muse, that lovely, large, floating, angely-looking, fairy godmother-type Beatrice, whom so politely waits where? Like, just outside our window? Or on our shoulder or in a chariot of stars for our fresh, pulpy minds to shudder and crack, to shiver and pop, fluttering with excitement or experience, and then, bam, she throws some lightning or shoots an arrow or chucks an idea our way, and it sticks, and we write, and we write, and we write, and inspiration, my God, the muse, we will forever faithfully worship you, but... (laughs) This is all well and good at first. But how long are we, practically speaking, supposed to wait for her? And are we sure that we'll recognize the muse when she arrives? Like, could she wear a red rose? As writers, are we obligated to wait for the inspiration? Do we become too reliant upon it? Or should we just get started already? Amy, our director of the program, once told me that someone once told her that someone once told that person <laughs> that Heraclitus said about inspiration. If there's no wind, row. Well, at today's Elevenses, Marcos Filatoro will discuss inspiration, what it means, how we could harness it, or just when to throw it in the trash and pick up the oar. Marcos, I think, must be acquainted with a variety of muses, as he's written in almost every genre. He's the author of the Romelia Chacon crime novels, for which the Los Angeles Times listed his home killings as a best book of 2001, And he's also written an autobiographical novel, books of poetry, novel, memoir. He's a regular commentator for NPR, has appeared on numerous television shows, and holds the Fletcher Jones Endowed Chair in Writing at Mount St. Mary's College in Los Angeles. So please join me in welcoming Marcos Filataro.
1: Muchas gracias, amiga. Y bienvenidos. Muy buenos días. ¿Cómo amanecieron? Muy bien, muy alegre. Listos y listas para escribir algunas palabras en las tertulias literarias, ¿verdad? How y'all doing this morning? <laughs> um, I greet you in both my languages, uh, Salvadoran Spanish and Appalachian English. Um, as as in, in my first books, they they put my whole name there because, you know, they make the name smaller on those first books. And then it was Marcos McPeak Villatoro. And people ask, that's, that's a mouthful. Where did that come from? And I, I usually explain that it's the Latino tradition of taking the names of both your mother and your father, your, their last names, and uh, I've done that. And so the McPeak is my father, Ralph, who was born on Clinch Mountain. Actually, yeah, near Clinch Mountain in a place called Bray Strait, because they used to raise mules there. That's not a very romantic place to be born in, but Bray Strait. And he was born in, in, the, in the Appalachian Mountains. My mother was born in Usulután, El Salvador, in Central America, to which usually the fellow says to me, okay, how did that happen? How did you get this white guy from East Tennessee with this very brown woman from, from Central America? I, I didn't, they did it on their own. My, my mother immigrated to the United States in 1942, uh, and my grandmother became Rosie the Riveter at that time. She was one of the folks on the dock putting together the ships for the war effort uh, in, on the San Francisco docks. I always had to uh, imagine my grandmother Romilly with that big, big helmet on and with a welding torch and somehow smoking a lucky strike at the same time. <laughs> that doesn't quite work. But uh, my mother worked on the docks as well. Dad served in the South Pacific in the Navy during World War II. And at, in 1945, he got off of his ship in San Francisco, he was going to take the long way home. Many a soldier and military man after World War II wanted to see America. There was this real desire to see America. There was a lot of cross-pollination, a lot of traveling, and he was going to do that from San Francisco to East Tennessee. He got a job in San Francisco where my mother worked, and the boss, I guess, was ahead of his time in 1945. He said, Ralph, Amanda, I'd like you two to get together have a cup of coffee. I think you all would hit it off. And they sat down, and my mother would say to me when I was growing up, I just remember, hijo, I was looking at that man, that gringo on the other side, and I remember those ojos verdes. Ay, Dios, he had ojos verdes. He had green eyes. And green is the color of fecundity in, in Central America. If you read uh, the, the novella Ahora by Carlos Fuentes, which is a really gorgeous, sexy, haunting ghost story, uh, Ahora all the time is wearing green velvet. And so in Mexico, everybody knows what that means. Uh, and also in Central America. And my dad had these ojos verdes. He had these green eyes. And my dad was looking over at her from, with the San Francisco Chronicle between them. And he said, some, he was kind of a shy fellow, but he said something in Appalachian like, mm, yeah, boy. And uh, they fell inevitably and deeply in love. And uh, mom did not speak English and my father did not speak Spanish, so they got married. Um, LAUGHTER and the reason Dad was in San Francisco was he was waiting for his Harley to be made. He was, uh, right after the war, you know, the rationing of the war and, and metals and all, you had to wait a while for, uh, for vehicles to be built. And so he was waiting for his Harley. And he finally bought a 1947 Knucklehead, biggest bike of the time. And, uh, but now he was married, and he had his little lady with him. And, and so they both strapped up into leather and the goggles and the leather and the leather my mother was really into leather. Uh, we have these photos of her with all chaps on and 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 my dad also he had wore, they wore the leather mostly for the wind and and I've worked on this novel a bit of this bicultural couple who cannot speak to each other on the back of a 1947 hog riding over the Golden Gate Bridge he up in the front trying to uh, have a conversation, yelling back, Honey, are you ready for the adventure of your life? And she in the back, Oh, Ralph, como te quiero tanto. And poof, off they went. <laughs> Route 66, all the way to East Tennessee, the first of nine trips across America on the back of that Harley Davidson. They, they would, uh, my mother would miss her mother. They would want to go back to San Francisco. And uh, so they'd get on the Harley and they'd ride it back to San Francisco. And my dad would get a job in the coal mines uh, in Kentucky. And they'd get on the Harley and they'd ride it back to Tennessee. Back and forth nine times. They did the Daytona races. we have all these photos. And I remember as a 16-year-old, I would look at these old black and white photos with the beveled edges, and I would weep. Because there's nothing worse than being 16 years old and realizing that your parents were bigger badasses than you will ever be. Um, And a lot of my stories are about them, obviously. Um, And my dad was a storyteller. Is a storyteller. He's 87. He still has that gift about him. When at a little gathering or party or a dinner, when he says the three words "there was this," everybody leans in because you know he's going to say something about "there is this man." He had his girlfriend in the back of the car, and you know that he's going to go into this wonderful con- just, just story that he's probably making up at the time. Stories. Uh, I didn't realize. You don't realize some things to you're older that that I was steeped in stories when I was growing up. I was also steeped in poetry. My mother in El Salvador would, as as is the case still today, you had to memorize poetry, and you usually had to memorize Rubén Darío, and then later on Pablo Neruda. But my mother would have to memorize in first and second grade, you know, juventud, divino tesoro, ya te vas para no volver. Cuando quiero llorar, no lloro, y a veces lloro sin querer. How was that? You know, no, not me. My mother was did I get an A? And the teacher would say, yeah, you, you did okay. Go get your lollipop or your pupusa or tortilla. And, and all the kids would be steeped in, in poetry, which I just I think is wonderful. Um, I was just in Nicaragua last month, and I asked some of my students, I was teaching uh, students from here, we took them there, and I said, go ahead, try it. And so one of my, my <laughs> Peter is his name, he, a kid was coming up and begging, and then Peter said in broken Spanish, okay, um, do some poetry. Do you know Rubén Darío? And the kid went, oh. and he did it. Juventud Divino Tesoro. Ya te va. <laughs> Nothing's changed in 80 years and sent to America. He said, now, can I have my, you know, and then he, Peter gave him his money. Uh, so very much steeped in all that. But that's not inspiration. That's not, that's not a muse. It might be amusing, but it's not the muse. And I loved your opening about the muse. Something happened in American history, American literary history, in the 1800s, when and it wasn't, it didn't start just then. But Oscar Wilde really rode this horse about the gods coming and bringing it down into his head, and then he just spouted it out, and that's why it was so beautiful because there's a connection to the gods. Keats also was in that kind of framework, and it stuck with us a little bit that that the writer is this person who has some sort of metaphysical connection to something or someone that feeds them this inspiration. Um, fortunately, something came along in the early 20th century called the Iowa Writers' Workshop. And the Iowa Writers' Workshop reminded people that, no, writing is work. Writing is a lot of work. And, and that sort of, it was Paul Ingalls and others who came along, of course, Flannery O'Connor, um, was one to say that as well. Somebody would ask her during book readings, where do you get your inspiration? And she would say, I get my inspiration by sitting my ass down at the desk every day. And people sometimes are put off by that. But it really makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Down here, I'm going to do a little show and tell, which is at, at the risk of both hubris and, uh, and, and shame. Uh, and I'll show that to you in just a minute. But before I do that, I would, I'd like to just tell you a little bit of why, what happened to me. I know that when I was in college, I went to St. Ambrose University. Those of you from Iowa know St. Ambrose is just down the road in Davenport, Iowa. Back then it was St. Ambrose College, a nice college. Um, it, it wasn't the workshop or anything, but it was a good place where you had plenty of books, and you had, uh, you know, out of ten teachers, one would be good, or two would be good, and one would be good and caring, and would be a mentor to you. That sort of thing is what usually happens at any, any decent college. And then you have other people of like minds who care about the same thing as you do. So it was wonderful, I loved it. I was first-generation college, and, and that was great. Uh, when I, and I, Actually, I went there, I was a seminarian. I was gonna be a Roman Catholic priest, but we won't open that kind of worms. That's a whole other thing. Uh, although that gave me a lot to write about, but, but after two years, I left the seminary I uh, fell in love with my soon-to-be wife, Michelle, at that time we, uh, we were dating, and I moved to a little house. And I remember sitting out on some one September morn, looking out and thinking, God, what a beautiful day today is, I think I want to write a story. And I had been writing poetry up to that point. You know, I in in the seminary I would uh, write a poem and then I would open my dorm room door and I'd slam the poem on the door with tape and I'd close the door. And I'd wait. And guys would come by and you could hear them. They'd be mumbling. And then you'd hear scratching. <laughs> It's usually Pat McHenry. Pat McHenry, a good friend of mine, he's now an English professor, but he he back then we were both nineteen and he would scratch on them. then then they go away. Then I would come out like some little like Grendel in John Gardner's novel, and I'd open up the door and I would look at it and there it was, my first workshop. <laughs> Pat Pat would come by and he would say, Oh, I love this this light this line here is so Elliot like, but you're really bullshitting me down here. And this is vague here. And then Jim Hannon, who ended up being the mechanic at, at the college in later years, said, What the hell is this about? I, I have no damn idea what you're writing about. But it was great because I, and then I, I would throw out another poem, and, and you know, we, that was just a wonderful place to be. But then that day came, and I thought, I want to write something big. I didn't call it a novel, I just said something big, a big old story. So I sat down, I had an old manual typewriter. And I started. Actually, I started handwriting first. And I handwrote And I wrote a whole page that first day. I wrote this page in on yellow. The yellow cuadernos, you know, those those pads. And uh, wow, that was cool. And I put it away. And so the next morning, it, I, I had an eight o'clock class. So I got. Up, I usually got up at seven forty nine to <laughs> run to the college, and. Then I thought, no, I'll get up at seven thirty, and I'll have that coffee, and I so I said, and I wrote a couple more pages the next day, and I reread what I wrote the first day, and I said, oh, that's good, but no, oh, maybe I could tweak right, you know, this right here. And then I keep writing, and then the third day came, and then it's you know, seven thirty is not enough, seven fifteen, and as the days passed, seven seven o'clock, seven six thirty, seven okay, five four forty five, <laughs> I would get up at four forty five. And not because, that's not to say, oh, look at me, I, it was more like it was an addiction. Or somewhat like the analogy of, uh, you know, folks who start running, you know, and then you start exercising every day, and at the same time, at the same time, I think it's very important, and then before you know it, you can't, you somewhat can't live without it, or you don't want to live without it. That analogy is limited, but I think that was part of what was happening. But something else was happening. I was sitting down every day, and I was wanting to write. And I wrote, as Anne Lamott would say, bird by bird, just a little at a time. Just a little at a time. And I uh, I wrote uh, for about a year and a half, and I wrote a 427-page novel. And it was horrible. It was so bad. It was about a college student living in a college. (laughs) Right? But then it, then it started going back to, into the past and childhood and all that. But, and and uh, a friend read it. You get a friend to read it, and he said this is, he was amazed that, it, that I had done it, but uh, he was kind. And that, that novel got shelved. Bam. I put it. My mother, my mother shelved it for me, and then 15 years later, when my, or 20 years later, when my first book came out, she gave me that one. She gave it back to me. I now have it. And I don't see that as a failure because it taught me the exercise, the vocation, the job, the obsession of writing. How do you learn to write? By writing. Yeah, but how? Well, you write. Yeah, but what are this, tr- the, come on, we're here at this summer writing festival. What? Well, I can give you some tips. That's all I think we, prof- and I think we need, I think as professors we need to be honest. We can give you tips. And we can give you guidelines and maybe a flecha here, you know, an arrow there, but those are only tips regarding structure and uh, character development and what is a plot and what is profluence and what is the pace and is the reader going to turn the page and remember, it gets worse. You know, a friend of mine who has that up on her computer in a little post-it note as she's writing said, remember, the story, it gets worse. It has to get worse, it's conflict. Nobody wants to read a happy novel. Those are nice little guidelines. But what do you do after this? What I hope, and what I hope is for for students, for people, not students, writers. You, many of you are already writing. Is you go home and you get fired up and say, "Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm now. I'm gonna. I'm gonna kick a little bit here and get sit down every day." So I don't believe in muses. That's, I think that's that's horseshit. There are no muses. There there is, there are those moments when you're writing every day, and you're writing along and you're getting characters and then. Something happens, you know, the synapses really spark so loud that your cat hears it and maybe jumps from the bed because there's something and you oh, yes, Carolyn is a lesbian. Yes, of course. Thank you, gods. You know, that's, that's our response, right? You, or, you know, Catholic and you, oh, yes, thank you, bishop. That, that, that something you realize, and, and then you start talking in terms of, she just came alive for me. She just came alive on the page. And all your friends back away. <laughs> Don't buy him another drink. Just give him the cigarettes and we'll go. Because you, you begin, or like, as, as a poet, or those we hang out, what's the name of the, the, the one uh, bar that the poets and the writers hang out at? That I never did. I had four kids. Uh, the Deadwood. Oh, that smoky place. Yes, the Deadwood. And sit around talking and, yes, I can't believe it. When I found out that Lolita was about a pedophile, I... It inspired me to write about a turtle. I mean, anything, you know, just... But, it, but we, we get that. We read other people's stuff, and it inspires us to move and try to make our own stuff. That's inspiration, yeah. If that's a muse, okay. But. I think the muse pops up after you've done this work along the way, and then you have this aha moment. And, and they're wonderful; they're delightful. I was—I don't—I'm going to ruin it for some of you if you buy Venom Beneath the Skin. But I created this. Um, I have Romilia Chakong. She's a detective. She's an FBI agent. So her boyfriend is, gets murdered. That's the plot. That's the movement, right? So she has a new partner, and 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 her partner's name is Nancy Pearl. Nancy Pearl. I got the most cling clangy name i could think of nancy pearl and nancy pearl is blonde and white and blue-eyed and everything Romelia is not you know Romelia is latina brown-eyed and a scar on her neck and nancy pearl is just this well gosh i can't wait till we solve this little crime don't you know (laughs) and uh so i put her in there i remember i was writing and saying well i need a partner because uh is going to have to have somebody to riff off of and talk with and and talk about, geez, this cracker, I don't want to have her around anymore. And, and then Nancy Pearl says things like, well, I don't understand why people in LA speak Spanish. We are in America, you know. It's crazy things like that, right? Well, I'm, and I'm writing that, and I'm believing that's Nancy. Nancy's like this. And at one point, they're in the car together, and uh, Romelia is not driving, Nancy is. And, she, and Nancy says, you don't believe that Te Mang killed Chip, do you? And Tecumumong is a, one of my main characters in all the books. And Romilia finally says, no, I don't. To be honest, it's not piecing together. And Nancy says, well, why? It's obvious he cut a word into Chip's stomach, just like Tecumumong always does. And Romelia says, okay, I'll tell you why. He forgot to accent his O <laughs> on the stomach when he cut. And Nancy said, really? And Nancy reaches over and chokes Romelia and knocks her out. I didn't know that was going to happen until it happened. I swear to God. I was writing that that morning, and the moment that Romelia said he didn't accent his O, I wrote that, that Nancy reached over and, suff- not suffocated, but, you know, knocked her out. And I, oh, that was the day I came through the house to my wife. Mi vida, mi vida! And she's, oh, good, good, all right, all right. Here's, your, here's your lithium, okay, go ahead. And, right? But, but it's just, it's so wonderful. That, to me, is a sense of inspiration and muse, but it came from the work. It came from working to that, and then, oh, you have these wonderful moments, and you'll never forget them. I, and I bet many of you have had that. Afterwards, we're going we're gonna to have more time with Q&A, and, and I'd, like to, I'd be interested in, in hearing if some of you have had that as well. Now, all that said, we're, now we're going to go look at these little things here. Um, how many? Do, do you like? How many of you sit down every day and write? Just real quick. Okay, a few. Yeah, as many days as you can. Right? Uh, feel pretty good about it? Is, do you some days wonder? Oh God, what am I doing? Oh God, I I am not a writer. I am just a bag of guts. <laughs> And then other days, oh, no, this is going really well, right? You're you're doing that. But overall, do do you all, do you find pleasure in writing? Is it it pleasurable overall? Is it, you know, that sense. I have, I know that when I finish a day of writing, I I might be tired. I might be really, actually, I will be exhausted. But I also am pleased because I worked that day, right? But nobody asked me to write that damn novel. I have not been commissioned to write anything. Like an artist, nobody has asked me to throw paint on a canvas. I'm doing this for myself. I'm doing this, hopefully, for some money down the road. I'm doing this for publication, maybe. I'm doing this for, yes, of course, fame. I'm doing this to feed my narcissism. I'm doing this because I love to tell stories. All those different things, right? But when we're in our home, that's great. But then we, 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 we dare to take all that inspiration and work and take it out into the world. And this is what I want to take you through. Okay. Um, This first, we're going to start over at the end, that's the end. This pile is a collection of some of my books. I'll pick them up here. Um, You know, I've been writing since 1982. My first 12 years of writing, I did not publish anything. I wrote. I wrote for 12 years, 11, 11, 12 years. And uh, I'd write a manuscript and throw it in the closet, write a manuscript, throw it in the closet. Every once in a while, I'd try to send it out. I'd send it to some little podunk place like, you know, Simon & Schuster. And, <laughs> and I would say, you know, dear editor, this is my book. It's, it's called The Death of Three. If you read it, if you want to buy it, okay. You know, I, didn't know, I didn't know anything about marketing. I don't know. Marketing? I just... And, of course, it came back rejected, and I, but I'd just go back like a fool and keep writing, right? So I wrote for 12 years until a friend of mine named Guy Carroll, who's a singer, said to me, a uh, folk singer, he said, Marcos, if you want more than your wife and your mother reading these manuscripts of yours, you need to start marketing. So in 1994, I believe, I, I said, okay, January 1st, New Year's resolution, the three or four hours that I spend writing every day that I've been spending for the past decade plus, I'm going to devote to this thing called marketing. So I learned everything I could about marketing. Just what's a query letter, how to send it out, where to learn. It just, you read books about how to send out query letters. Um, and would send out query letters to magazines. I would like to write a, a short, I, I would like to write an essay for your music magazine vibe about Latino migrant farm teenagers picking tomatoes in the fields of Alabama while listening to Snoop Doggy Dog coming out of their truck. <laughs> it sold. And that's the great, you know, it's like, well, that's unique. Out of that one that sold, ten other magazines said, no, we're not interested in those other ideas, whatever they were. You start getting rejection letters. You start seeing that as part of the business. Okay, I get a rejection. They didn't like that. Okay, well, get them next time. So I did that and marketed for six months. Got my first two contracts those six months. Sold directly to the publishers, you know, which is, you know, in and out. But so I'm just going to show you a few of these. This is the hubris part, before we go to the shame, okay? Uh, let's see. Okay, oh, here's my first novel, A Fire in the Earth. is this huge novel that is, uh, it's about the 1932 massacre in El Salvador. My mother survived, she was five years old, she survived the massacre of 30,000 people in three weeks. Uh, some old man hit her in a donkey-driven cart full of hay. And, and she, she, and she would tell me this story when I was growing up. That's one story she could tell. And, and I would just be in awe, especially when you're six years old, going, ee. Uh, but that would stick with you, so I wrote a whole novel and that. It was a historical novel. The, the novel that came after that, which I wish I had here, I, didn't, I don't have it, it's called The Holy Spirit of My Uncle's Cojones. And it's a, <laughs> it's a comedy novel. I call it my ironic novel. It's my family erotica novel. It's uh, a comedy about teenage suicide, you know, trying to take these, these things that are supposedly opposites. And uh, so I wrote something that was fun, but also very... Uh, that was my autobiographical novel that you referred to. Uh, his name is Antonio Macavia Lobos. And he has an Appalachian father and a Salvadoran mother. I just went whole hog with it. It was a lot of fun. Then I started writing... Uh, I have a couple books of poetry here. This, uh, they say that I am two, and on Tuesday when the homeless disappeared. Uh, lots of money in poetry. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but you don't do it for that. You do it for... Now, I mean, that, to me, that's the... If there's anything pure in the world, it's getting close to it. To, not not my poems, just poetry. I mean, you talk about the art of writing. So I've been fortunate in that. Um, then I started writing these crime fiction books, A Venom Beneath the Skin, and then they got picked up down the road. I mean, this is a career that I'm going through quickly. Uh, Random House put them out in mass-market paperback. This is Minos. Minos has been my my, my truly faithful child who has, has taken good care of me. Uh, because Minos got me into Japan. Uh, this is the Japanese version of one of the Romilia Chekong novels. And, let's see. Um, then Minos also got me into Portugal and Brazil. This is the Portuguese translation. You want to get in the foreign markets. Foreign markets are good. Foreign markets are good, they're very good. They're better than movies. Anyways, when's they gonna make a movie? Yeah, that that oh I live in LA. I've been in those I've been in those meetings. We're gonna take like the Silence of the Lambs meets Dante meets you know <laughs> meets the uh, meets the Cholos on the street man, and they they pitch like that. It's like what you uh, so murder mysteries been very nice. And now this actually I found out this morning uh, we're very happy about this one. This is the German version of Minos. Um, and seems I'm a bestseller in Germany. That's nice. Oh, well, that, yeah, and yeah, money. <laughs> a little money. Now, yeah, there's the hubris, right? And I also write for this magazine. This is a, an L.A. magazine called Ciudad City, and I have a column in here called Sunset at Chavez, which is Sunset and Chavez, is they meet in L.A. right downtown. It's Sunset and then it's Chavez. So I write about the Latino world in Los Angeles and kind of where it meets. All right. What a good little boy am I, right? Okay, what I wanna do, and I have to be careful with this, I'm gonna hand out some things, uh, and I just, I beg of you, as, as, as fellow writers, to make sure that they get back to me, okay? These are very important to me, uh, mainly because I will be giving these to my children, all right? But that's, these, these are very, these are gifts to my children. This is a, I write a novel like this, I handwrite it first, and uh, this is the handwritten version of a novel, I forget which one it is. Oh, no, it's one that's not been published yet. Um, and I was feeling really obsessive one day, so I decided to write this with a nib and a bottle of ink. And I did, I did, and I, just, I, and I poured ink all over the place, I got ink on the cat, I, just, I, was, I was all over, I looked like Charlie Brown, right before he says, dear pencil, pal. You know, I, I just got ink all over, but then after a while, you get into it and you, you really, it was, it was a really physical, you dip, you write, and I swear to God, I had never had this before, I never stopped writing. I just, you just for two hours, three hours, just went through. <coughs> so, you can look through that. I want you to look through this because the whole thing of the muse, uh, you start rewriting, right? And you'll see my little scratchy notes on there. So, after I, after I write, handwrite it, I type it on a 1941 Royale. <laughs> and that's this version of that novel. And again, I invite you to just flip through and look, there's a lot of writing on the back of pages. I think a lot of you do that, probably. You scratch out, you change names, you change places, you do all of this work. And uh, that's the second draft. So I'm gonna take it back here. You can pass that around. And then, Finally, I get to this thing. It's called a computer. It's uh, and and I put it in the computer because you have to get it in the computer, right? You have to you have to send it to somebody. So you have to send it either by attachment or or, or where you can clean it up and clean it up and clean it up. But still, you'll write. You'll see uh, that. Oh my gosh! Yeah, look I, I rewrites on the back. This is after the third time through. So that that. Uh, to me, again, is the whole question of inspiration, and rewriting, and rewriting, and rewriting. And I think many of us love that. Give a glance at that. So, that's the beginning, right? Actually, it's before that. You write in your journal. Uh, I, I do character sketches uh, in my journals for several days to catch on to... What does Romelia smoke? What does she eat? What does she like to eat? What, what food does she hate? Uh, some of you in my class this weekend had some great little questions of what, uh, what kind of little ticks they had. Um, you know, some people like to do that on tables. Uh, other people, I don't know, pull on their ear the Carol Burnett motif. I don't it, Just little things that we do. You write it down and get to know that character. Then I start writing, the, I start writing this. That's the begin that's the wonderful time of inspiration that's a- this is the outcome hopefully after 20 20- well we've been married 25 years and I started writing when uh, when we first met so 25 26 years of writing you hope to get some stuff out there believe me years goes by and years go by and you hear nothing and that's the time when you have to ask yourself whether or not you're going to keep writing but then this other thing happens And we'll have to share. This is my rejection file. It's my third rejection file. I have two more at home. And this is the 90s. Uh, And like I said in my class this weekend, Rejection letters are like masturbation. No one wants to talk about them at the dinner table. You just don't want to talk about that. If you don't talk about it, they'll go away. Right? And your son will never do it. But uh, I like to talk about it. Because, uh, and I made some photocopies here for it, but you'll have to share between two or three. So I'm going to have, I'll start at the back on this one. Well, just, if you could, could you? Be so kind as just to start, and just if you could share between
0: two or three.
1: Uh, But I'd like to read through these, (laughs) a few of these, because this, this, um, this right here stops a majority of us from continuing on. We stop. I know friends from the Iowa Writers' Workshop who are the best damn writers in America. I've read their poetry and their fiction, and they're not writing anymore. Because it's painful. I I don't fault them for that. I don't fault them at all for that. Because I think some of them love literature so much that they don't want to go through this crap. It's just, it's, it's very difficult. This is the marketing part, but uh, but there are some great writers who who decide not to go on with this, and I think that's a fine and actually somewhat of a noble decision to make, Um, to say maybe I'll just write purely for myself, you know. So uh, it's oh they're going around okay. What I want to the, the the last thing I want to leave you with is this, inspiration can come from rejection, believe it or not. Those first rejection letters that are just photocopies and says, thanks but no thanks, you don't get much out of those. But if you as a writer start getting letters that say something to you, then something could happen. So I've got the originals, I hope I'm in the same uh, uh, pattern as you all. The first one, Houghton Mifflin, Is that what that Houghton Mifflin Company? Uh, From Don Safarian. Is Don here? No, I hope not. Okay. Uh, 1996. Dear Mr. Villatoro, very many thanks for the chance to read your proposal out of the silent ashes. Your writing is powerful and the story promises to be quite a provocative novel. I'm afraid, though, that I don't feel I am the right editor for this book. I don't, I just don't have the enthusiasm I'd need in order to publish it successfully. Many thanks and good luck in finding the right editor." At first I would take that and go, you don't have enthusiasm for my book? What are you, saying? I've got a lot of enthusiasm, why don't you? Uh, but what I've learned is, that she's not the first to have said, I, I just, I, I don't know if I can get behind this book emotionally. I don't, I just don't have the verve, I mean, you write well, and so I realized, and what I've learned is, such as when you get an agent, they have to really love your stuff, right? They, they, they connect with you. This is the personal relationship made. This is the marriage made between you and an agent, you and an editor. And it is a marriage. And like in marriages, there are compromises to be made. Uh, there's long periods of no sex. And there is times where you, you, you argue, perhaps, but then you also come back together and you try to work it out. And, uh, and that's who you want to get as a, as a partner, really. They are your partner. And so she, she said, I just don't know if I can be your partner. You know, it's like dating. I, I, you know, you're, you're kind of cute. Shave the beard, get rid of that, you know, whatever. And then maybe, but no, no. Okay. I got a lot of those, I would say. I just, you don't have any enthusiasm. The next one, is it Creative Arts Book Company? That one really doesn't tell you much, except for one thing. It says, we are really backlogged we have 10,000 novels to read. And there's some guy in Thailand who's faxing his 700-page manuscript to us right now. <laughs> I really had that happen once. This guy from Thailand. He sent, his, he just kept feeding it. And, and the agent in New York is like, stop, just stop. You know, I don't know. And he couldn't unplug it or whatever. But this one doesn't say much except to say, you know, we're really busy, so we can't, we have to send out a form letter. So you realize, okay, I won't, probably won't go to them much anymore. Oh, the New Yorker. Okay, now here's the New Yorker. Um, of course, there's Playboy at the bottom. Playboy is a good place for short stories, by the way. Women and men, don't think it's just for men anymore. <laughs> um, but it's a great place to, to, to sell your, novel, your, your short stories. But I want to show this the New Yorker. We're sorry to say that this manuscript is not right for us in spite of its evident merit. Unfortunately, we are receiving so many submissions that it is impossible for us to reply more specifically. We thank you for the chance. to Consider your work. And then some temp person wrote, good story, thanks. And I just, oh, thank you, I love you. Because the New Yorker, I mean, God, the New Yorker, what do they get, 50 50 magazines, 50 issues a year? So maybe 60 short stories, maybe, when they have the the fiction issue. Uh, And 10 billion short stories go through that building every minute. So they have that, but I want to show you this. This is a photo, mimeograph or photocopy of, right? It doesn't say, Dear Mr. Villatoro, or nothing like that. But it's kind of nice. It says, in spite of its evident merit. Now, you can think, oh, they're bullshitting you, because they're just saying that. No, I don't think they are, because first somebody wrote good story, thanks. And if you turn the page and look at the next New Yorker rejection, <laughs> look how witty it is. It's like, look at that. <laughs> We regret that we are unable to use the enclosed material. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to consider it. The editors. The margins are seven feet deep (laughs) on both sides. What they're also saying is P.S. Please keep your day job and never write us again. (laughs) Right? I sent them something and they hated it. They said, give them the hate hate one. Give them the one that, to say really, we do not want to encourage you. We do not want to encourage you on this one. Go find else ye something to do. So, they have different mimeographs. Remember that. Ooh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. The Echo Press. I love this one. This is a great one because <laughs> for a moment there, I thought, uh, uh, OK. Dear Ms. thank you for giving us the opportunity to consider Out of the Silent Ashes. We thought the writing was quite strong. One reader compared it to The House of the Spirits. We thought the repetition of key events greatly augmented our understanding of their gravity. Also, we thought the way eating and killing were linked were especially effective. The third chapter was our favorite. <laughs> However, despite its virtues, we decided that this novel wouldn't quite fit our list. <laughs> we hope that you find a publisher for this novel if you haven't already. They loved it. I love it, now make me hate it. I mean, it's just, what, what is the signal they're giving me? <laughs> yeah, but they were saying, well, it's good, but we're not, we're not, re- we're not enthused. Yeah. Writer's House. Writer's House is a good agency. And I courted Susan Ginsburg for as long as I could. And she was very kind, because we got on a first-name basis through rejection letters. (laughs) Dear dear Marcos, thank you for sending along your manuscript of Shadows of Redemption, and my sincerest apologies for the delay in responding to you. I've had three people read this in-house. Ah, she was struggling. She was vexed. So she gave it to other people to read. And we all agree that you are a very talented writer. You write with a clear, skillful voice, and you've developed a cast of complex, sympathetic characters. However... Ooh, that word, however. It's just, never name your child, however. It's just, be, they'll be doomed for this. However, I'm concerned that there's a certain quiet here that would make the book difficult to sell in today's market. While your writing is very strong, there seems to be a lack of dramatic moment and narrative drive. In fact, this is almost a memoir in a novel's clothing, and I'm not sure it shouldn't be just nonfiction. I imagine you will indeed find a publisher. I'm afraid I'm not taken enough with this to give it the attention it deserves. Ah, again, the attention it deserves. Wish you the best of luck. Thank you for your patience. One, that's a workshop, and two, I didn't pay for it. I didn't pay for this crit- critique. She gave it to me. One, because we built somewhat of a relationship. I would send. I think I sent her three novels throughout the, the two years that I that I was trying to get her, and she um, she gave me a lot. That that's that's gold. That is gold. Because she took, first of all, she took time out of a deathly busy schedule to write a letter. I'm emphasizing to you, those of you who have received letters that have actually written something to you, that's a good sign of you as a writer. All right. Now, you'll get 10,000 Xerox photocopies, but if you get one every once in a while like this, they're saying, you write well. And that, might, that that's the only that's the only heroin you're going to get for a while to keep you... <laughs> Writing. All right? It's, it's, that's the tough part. This one is about the Holy Spirit, my uncle's cojones. It just, John Bingham asked me to look at it. Sounds interesting. We weren't quite crazy enough about it to add it to our list. We're particularly crowded with fiction. And we wish you luck. Well, I, grow Atlantic, that's a nice place. But, uh, you know, a book gets turned down. Maybe picked up by somebody else. Here are two from, uh, two Story magazines. Story was a great journal. It doesn't exist anymore, I don't think, unless somebody's resurrected it. And there's one handwritten, you can read that, and there's one over here, the Missouri Review. By the way, I would say to many of you who are short story writers, if you're interested in sending stuff out, the Missouri Review is a good place. Beautiful writing in there. Missouri Review, Georgia Review, some of these little places that you might not hear about, don't get a lot of money. But if you're in them, uh, it's quite good for one's career. But I didn't get in them. (laughs) So, but I, you know, here it is. Once again, handwritten notes saying, you know, it's pretty good, but it's not quite there yet. Now, this is the one I would show about critique-free workshop. Uh, it's hard to read this one. It's Stepping Stone Literary Agency. It's actually Sarah Freeman. And the next one, she changed her the name of her agency to Sarah Freeman. While I found this to be intelligently written, evocative, lyrical, atmospheric, poignant. I did not feel it would work for Skipping Stone. The large cast, an unwieldy convoluted plot made for a tough read. I missed a clearer, stronger plot and exposition. Very intriguing, though. Best of luck." Now, I had sent her a fire in the earth, that big one about the, the massacre. And I had 12 people in chapter 1, and I killed off 10 of them in chapter 2. And, and that, I thought, yeah, I was just starting out. I was still learning. It wasn't meant to be, write a novel. How do you get all these people in there? I was trying to do a Garcia Marquez thing with a lot of people. So I read this and I thought, oh, okay. So I got rid of tw- ten people and kept two. And walked them from chapter one to chapter two. One gets killed by the earthquake. Oops, sorry. One gets killed by the earthquake. The other one lives on, but has to live with the, you know, whatever, the 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 angst of the earthquake. So I changed the book. I sold the book. A year or two later, I went to Miss Freeman and I wrote her a letter and said, Dear Miss Freeman, you once sent me a rejection letter, and enclosed is a photocopy of it, in which you or one of your people gave me some wonderful advice. And I used that advice, and I used it on the novel. I changed the novel, rewrote it, and I sold it. And here are some reviews of the novel. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to write this. And while I'm at it, I've got this other novel here. <laughs> and, and I sent her, I think it was cojones, I'm not sure, it might have been cojones. And so, she wrote me this next one. <laughs> Dear Marcos, you are so charming. <laughs> and, and the background you described is so incongruous and delightful that I wanted to love this, and furthermore, you write well, but I just couldn't connect in a deep enough way. I was amused, but not enchanted. I felt it was not dramatic or passionate enough for me. Quirky, but not quite something enough colorful enough. But let's face it, I turned down a book you wrote in the past and it was published and well-received. I hope the same fate befalls this book. May it be well-published, well-reviewed, and make you some money. Lots of success, Sarah Jane." Now to me, that one, I always show this to say, it's good to keep relationships, healthy relationships with people in the business world that you live in, right? I don't mean to be obsequious. I don't mean to kiss up to the, to the, to the boss. I don't mean all that, uh, unless you have to. But no, I, I mean really honest relationships that are, that are based in a certain candor and, and a certain uh, caring and empathy. And so I wrote her back and said, you are just so sweet. And if I see in New York, I'd love to take you out for a cup of coffee or something, yada, yada, yada. But just keeping those nice, those nice relationships, unlike the time, and I don't have it in here, in which I wrote an idea, I wrote a query letter to a woman at Soho Press, let's call her Miss Johnson, I don't remember her name, and I said, I have this great idea for a, a Latina detective, and her name is Emilia, and she's Latina, but she's also American, and it's, in this diverse market today, in which diversity is opening up, this is in the mid-90s, I think this would be a great time for her. She wrote back and said, thanks a lot for this, but I don't think, I, what I read was, uh, the idea of diversity selling today, really, I don't think is, is, would work. And, and I, so I'm, but I'm not reading it right. I suddenly forgot how to read English or something. And I, but she said, diversity doesn't work today. And at the time, I was working for an anti-racism group uh, run by Latinos and African Americans in and, and, and New Orleans. And they were, they, I mean, these are hardcore folks who have done a lot of wonderful work in New Orleans. But I was swept up in that. And so I sat down and wrote a letter to Ms. Johnson at Soho Press, and I said, Dear Miss Johnson, thank you for your myopic perspective on <laughs> diversity in the United States today. And I went on and on and on. And she wrote back and said, Dear Mr. Villatoro, I did not say that diversity was not marketable in this day and age. In fact, I believe in the opposite. If you check the letter I wrote to you, I said that your idea was not Developed well enough to be sold in this market. Grow up. <laughs> <laughs> and as I say to my undergraduate students, she was right. She was right. I let my hubris or my and just get up I wrote her apology uh, several months later, and and uh, she said, fine, but I burned that bridge. Out of my own narcissistic desire to get published, and da 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 all that, and the wor- work that I was working in, but it was humbling, and it was very good that she humbled me like that. Um, it was painful, but it was, it was humbling. To, to keep this, the other part of inspiration to me is this. This is, at a certain point, it becomes business. I know that sounds like a lousy word for creative writing and all that, but you're constantly developing your characters so that, yes, of course you want them to be sold or be published somewhere in some place. But uh, you, you have to also kind of get that thick skin a little bit. The last thing, I don't know if I agree with this last phrase, never, 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 never give up, uh, Winston Churchill. I, don't, I struggle with this because I, I think that could be wrong. As one of my, my students so wisely said this weekend, yeah, I have a friend of mine who's in business, and he has this up there, never, ever, ever, ever give up, Winston Churchill, and my friend is in four lawsuits. They're thinking about putting him in jail. He has bankrupted himself, his uncle, his but he's never given up, right? <laughs> he's a lousy businessman. He's a lousy businessman, but he's never given up. So that's, I struggle with that. I put it there, but to, I, would, I would invite you to struggle with it, to ask yourself the question, well, how long do I keep up with this? How long do I do it? Do I get enough? signals out, out there in the world to say, yeah, you, you seem to write well. Why don't you keep going? Why don't you keep going? So with that, uh, that's, that's The Little Dog and Pony Show. And what I'd like to do now, we have about seven minutes. I'm sorry, it's longer than I thought. But if you have any questions, I would love to try to answer them. Anything at all, about anything. Yes, ma'am? Do you outline? No. Do I outline? No, I don't. I, Well, excuse me, that's a half lie, half truth. I start with characters. I really believe that novels are driven by character. But once you start putting, you put two characters in a room together, uh, there's going to be a conflict at one point. So there's the conflict, and then at that point I have my journal to the side. I start organically outlining a little. Okay, for the next chapter so, this might happen, this might, that, that's where I do outline a little bit, yeah, but I won't outline a whole novel, else I would not have had that wonderful moment when Nancy Pearl became who she was, she was a spy for Te Mang. and that, that, was, that wouldn't have happened with a, an outline other folks, yes um, I hope I didn't miss this, so sorry if I no, it's okay your intro, but what did you do then to earn a living for your first 12 years while you were just writing what did I do to earn a living, yes I kept my day job, I tell you that uh, I used to be, I, used, I can't do it now, but I'd get up at quarter to five to ride for three or four hours every day uh, before I had to go to work. And I had to work. I worked, uh, well first of all my wife and I lived in Central America for many years, so we were doing grassroots community organizing there. Came back to the United States and went to Alabama where we worked with the migrant farm workers. That's where I wrote that essay. But I, my job was more administration. My wife was the one out there doing the work in the fields. Um, so I, I had, I, tried, I always tried to keep jobs that were somewhat flexible, Uh, but I had to be in an office by 9 o'clock, so I wrote really early in the morning. I I would say that writing was like surgery. You do it first thing in the morning. Like a friend of mine is a surgeon, he says, 6 o'clock in the morning, I'm not thinking about my wife, my second divorce, the alimony, the malpractice, the golf game, my kid who's on drugs, I'm thinking about the guy on the table. And, And that, in some ways, makes sense to me in writing, too to not let the day get crowded. Although I have a lot of friends who write at night after a full day, then they put the day away and they, they write at night, so. But yeah, you keep your day job. I have a day job now. I teach, it's a very nice gig, but I do teach a couple of classes every semester and uh, work at a college that is just a wonderful, wonderful community for me. Uh, I For those 12 years I, I worked, then I was accepted to the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and then I was, ooh, it was it was like cotton candy all day long because to me, what they did at Iowa was you have two years to write. You write. And some people froze up with that. Oh my God, God. I got all this time. Where's the bar? <laughs> I mean, it, it, and you know, the Deadwood has always done well off, the, off of the Albo Writers Workshop. But, but I loved it. I was, I mean, I have, I have this, uh, this uh, syndrome that I have to work with, but I, I have an obsessive uh, manner about me. So I, I just, I went from three hours a day to six. I just, I just wrote Every day, every morning, and that's been my pattern since then. Here's another. Yes. Have you ever simultaneously submitted any of your novels to compare your rejections? Yes. Very good question. Have I submitted to various places to compare the rejections? That one from Susan who said it seems more like a memoir, and I, she was the seventh rejection, and others were saying somewhat the same thing. So I was, I, I felt it out, and and out of those who wrote me, I went, oh wow, so this is really saying where this novel is not working. And, and that, that was helpful. It was very helpful. That was one of five or seven letters that, that they were saying, I'm not quite grabbing what this, what's at stake here. Um, so, so that... You
0: just, you just got one editor telling you that, and didn't, don't you ever get the feeling like, well, that editor is wrong. I'm gonna send it to another company. Oh.
1: Well, it's part of ego, but that ego is, is also many times your friend, because I always say in workshop to my students, okay, you put a piece of work out there, and everybody in the room reads it, they critique it, they go through it, the poem, the short story, and then you're sitting there, and of course you're dying inside, because it's workshop, right? And I remember that. They'd say Monday at, work, at, at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, we have a workshop on Monday, so you started drinking on Friday, because you knew that your poem was coming up, <laughs> right? Uh, it, it's, it's very tense, and many times you learn more about poetry or literature when you're not being workshopped because of the wonderful, effervescent conversation. What I say, though, the cheap advice is this. Today, if any of you are going to be workshopping, you get workshopped, then they either tear it apart or work at it, critique it, they think they love this part. You gather all those back, go home, and put that on a shelf for at least six weeks. And then you go back and look at it, and you're calmer, you're at home, and you can flip through it and you can say, oh, well, Judy said this, I kinda like, that that makes sense, I I might change it, but Marco said this, I think, no, he's not, I I can't agree with that. So you come back to your own voice. Otherwise, your short story becomes pablum. It becomes baby food. It's been chewed by so many people. You're writing for the workshop rather than for yourself. But now you've had this wonderful people talking about it, then you can come back and recollect strong emotion in tranquility <laughs> and, and and rewrite that short story and make it your own. So that's always my chief advice for, for workshop. Yes, ma'am. Um, have you ever gotten a really terrible review from a book? And what was your response or what do Yeah, I've had... Overall, I've had decent, or, you know, they'll say it's, he's kind of over the top here or whatever, but, you know, it's a good story and all. Uh, One of my poetry books, I got a review that, oh, it hurt so bad. It got a a number of good reviews, but this one guy just, he seared me. And um, I cried. I just cried because it was very painful. And, and, and you, you should do that. (laughs) You should cry and you should find a friend and you should say this hurts. Because it does. I don't mean to have the tough skin and nothing hurts. No, 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 it hurts. Every rejection will always hurt. The question is what you do with the pain. Uh, One thing I don't do, I do not look at my books on Amazon.com. That is like bobbing for Piranha. (laughs) Sorry, I just, I don't look at, I don't, I don't, unless I'm really drunk or something, but I will not, I will not look at what they say to me, about me. Oh. Because it's either very laudatory. Oh, this guy's the greatest thing since, you know, and I, I've given her an A in that class. <laughs> but, uh, but, or somebody who says, this guy's a fake, I mean, mean things, like, this guy's fake. He's a phony or stuff like that. It's just painful. And if you let reviews and shit get too much to you, you'll start to lose your own voice. You have to c- always come back to what you believe in. One last question. Yes, ma'am. When, when you got the rejection, the comment about it being more, more than awful. Oh. Oh, actually, I never returned to that novel. That's a good... I'm glad... Uh, she, she asked, what, what did you do after they said memoir to novel? What did you do to that novel? I didn't return to it. I, I actually, one point I would like to say, I have eight books published. I have eight books published, I, I am a commentator on NPR, and I write for a magazine. I have written 17 books. So that was one of those that didn't, that will never see the light of day. So I don't know how many, I don't know how many writers will tell you that. I think a lot of writers have manuscripts that'll never see the light of day in their closets. But I wrote like a madman for all this time, so I just, I just kept on throwing some of them. I wrote two bad crime fiction novels to write my first good one, Home Killings, and I wrote a really bad erotica, pornographic novel. <laughs> Then I turned and wrote *The Holy Spirit of Uncle's Cohonas*, which is an erotica novel. It's, so I, you know, I wrote a bad one to write a good one. I, that's the way I don't do that anymore. It's kind of tiring. I, <laughs> but I did that for a long time. I wish you all the best and uh, have a great week.